Hello, and a Happy New Year to you. May I welcome you to episode 13 of Moving Matters. I am your host, Colin Wynn. I hope Moving Matters will give you an insight to others working or have worked in this wonderful industry as I delve into their past, their present and their future. You will find a new episode of Moving Matters on the second and fourth Thursday of each month. I thoroughly enjoyed recording this episode with my guest, who is the immediate past president of the BAR. We discuss how he started in the industry, the challenges he's faced, his high points, how the shipping industry is in one of the biggest transitions the industry has ever seen, and as always, we end with a funny moving story regarding the shipment of a VIP, a Polaroid camera, and a statue of Eros. My guest this episode is Tony Tickner, Managing Director of the Eurogroup. Enjoy. Good morning, Tony. Good morning, Colin. How are you today? I'm really good today, thank you. Welcome to Moving Matters. Can you tell everyone a little about yourself and the length of time in this industry? I can. Well, first of all, thank you for um, having me on your podcast. I think it's a uh, it, it's a real insight into industry and how others have done. So um, I'm 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 honoured to be on here with you. Thank you very much. I started. Um, I've been in the industry 32 years. I fell into it really. You know, I was a. I originally started out in the tyre game. I I worked for Michelin, and one thing led to another. I was doing quite well at Michelin, and I got a job offer from a procurement company. Funny enough. It sort of helped I was seeing the boss's daughter. <laughs> <laughs> that always helps. <laughs> um, and he, he kept saying to me, I was 26, um, and I was doing rather well in, in Michelin. I was an area manager. I had a company car, and, you know, uh, uh, back then, you know, a really decent wage. And I was very, very happy in the industry I was in. But my girlfriend's father said, look, I need a hand. I've set up this little procurement company, you know, and I've got a contact in the Middle East and they need products. He, he was a major buyer um, for McDonnell Douglas and they run their site compound, which includes a hospital, fire station, housing. And he was responsible for purchasing everything. And he said, look, I've set up this procurement company and we're supplying to them. And I need a hand in sourcing anything they need. And I sort of ignored it for a few months. And eventually, I think what really did it was he said, look, I'll give you an XJS as a company car. Ooh. So I jumped ship on the back of a area manager, another area manager at Michelin saying, you're really young for the position you're in. And it's going to be another 15 years before you get your next promotion. So, um, yeah, I took, I, I don't know whether it was judgment or whatever, but I sort of jumped ship and thought, well, I'll go and give this a go. And I moved on to that. And it soon became apparent within a year, me and the girlfriend weren't getting on. <laughs> and, oh, dear. <laughs> um, it didn't affect the work or the working relationship, but it, it soon came apparent. I was, I was everything I, I purchased for this company had to be shipped. And I used, um, I got to know very well a member of staff at a, a, quite a large freight forwarding company. And he kept talking about wanting in his own business. And I said, look, you know, I did as well. And that's how it really all started. We ended up getting together uh, in a business partnership. We went and brought a um, single vehicle, a seven and a half ton truck, second hand, 
a tiny little warehouse because we knew we would need to, um, you know, hold freight for a while. And we were going to go into general cargo shipping. And we jumped ship. We, I put in every penny I had. He put in every penny he had, which was, I think, just under £5,000 between us. We went and got this truck on HP. We uh, rented a warehouse off a sports showroom, the, the lower part, two and a half thousand square feet. And we sat there and thought, brilliant, we've got our own company. The problem was we had no work. <laughs> well, we all have to start somewhere. Yeah. So we um, thought, oh, so we started, as you do, back in the day then, there was no email, doing flyers and, you know, him ringing up his contacts. I had a few contacts saying, look, if you want anything, ship in. And we got a couple of orders. And we soon realised, hang on a minute, there's only pence in this general cargo. We're never going to survive. And I think we didn't earn anything for the first three months. And, and my then business partner, a guy called Mark Nash, turned around and he said, look, I did five years for four wins out in the Middle East. So I'm going to ring my old boss out there, see if he's got anything. And he came back, a, a guy called Mohammed Armani, he, he, he purchased Four Winds Middle East uh, when Four Winds collapsed. And he said, yes, but we've got a lot of work. You can do some, but it's all household goods. And that's how we started in the household goods. We thought there's a bit more money in this. And that So was thing, that shipping household goods? Yeah, yeah exactly. We, well, we were his destination agent. We became right. his destination agent. So he, he kindly gave us some rates that he was currently paying. We looked at them and thought, this is definitely more money than general cargo. And we said, yeah, send it to us. We'll clear it and we'll deliver it. We've got a truck. And that's what we did. And for five years, the first five years, we would constantly up and down to Heathrow Airport at that time. Our little warehouse was in Surrey. And I spent all day... I drove the truck, loaded the truck, did the deliveries. Mark was back at the office, you know, in between jobs, trying to find more agents. And that's really how we started. So it was um, five years hard slog being on the, on the trucks, you know, and, but invaluable, invaluable learning. It really was. And from there, we slowly picked up more and more agents. So we did a lot of inbound work and we started then getting calls from people we had moved in on behalf of overseas agents to oh i'm ready to move back or i'm moving to somewhere new will you come and pack us excellent and that's slowly and surely how we built our company that was back in 88 we started that so can you tell everyone about your company and the services it offers? I believe you're multi-depot. How many depots do you run? How many vehicles? How many staff do you have? Okay, well, we run five depots, but only three, what I call operational. We use two depots for purely storage. Right. And we only have warehousemen at those depots. The other right. three, we, we run vehicles out and crews out of. We currently run... I. I don't even know the exact number, but it's around 40 vehicles out of those three depots. And we're currently on 44 staff. And is this household moving or is it just dealing with the, the shipments coming into the country, going no, out of the country? household moving. What we don't do is we don't do domestic moving. 
So it's pure overseas or European. We right. only do, dom- I say we, we don't do domestic, we do do domestic, but only for corporate clients. We, right. don't, we don't do domestic moving for private clients. And the name of this company? Is Eurogroup. The Eurogroup. So you, you would do the odd domestic job if somebody inquired, or is, if I was to inquire, for example, would, it, would I just be told, I'm sorry, we don't do domestic moves, uh, or, or would you pass it on to somebody else to do? Or Correct. You'd be told we don't do them. Right. <laughs> so you don't do commercial moves or anything like that? It's purely household moves to and from Europe, international? Yeah, we do a lot of domestic, but purely for corporate clients. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah as you rightly say, it is Mrs. Smith from... Mildon Hall rung us up, we would refer her to one of our colleagues. What challenges have you had to overcome? Oh, many. My biggest one is my dyslexia. That I always felt was a problem for me, although that's got easier over the years with the introduction of, you know, emails and spell checker and stuff like this. But I suppose our biggest challenge was being recognised within the industry in corporate accounts. You know, we were, I can remember when we were 26 and we we went to an overseas conference because that was the best way to meet a mass clientele. And we were very much not as being the young upstarts, very, very hard to get into a, a recognized corporate account. It was just a matter of keep banging on those doors for months on end, years on end on a couple of them, and and being taken seriously. But that's all about just being persistent and knowing what you're talking about, learning learning your trade and really knowing what you're talking about. And I think another thing that we were very good at in the early days was looking at something new. I can remember when we we had a number of of American agents and everything was in pounds per hundred weight. Yet the shipping world was always, you know, by cubic feet or cubic meters and everything was done pounds per hundred. So if you had a 20 foot, let's say, container going to London and it had 4,000 pounds, you'd price it on 4,000 pounds. Yet you could have the same container with five and a half thousand pounds weight in it. Our costs were exactly the same. The crew. Yeah. Costs for the day were the same. The, the line haul yeah. of the container was the same. The port fees were the same, you know, and the terminals were the same. So, so we were probably one of the very, very first companies to come up with. Hang on a minute, this is mad. Why don't we just offer them a lump sum container rate? And that bode us well. We 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 designed a tariff back in the early days, which were based on all FCL to door lump sum tariff, and it didn't take very long with a bit of promotion, sending out, you know, getting out everyone's addresses and posting them tariffs, they they would pick, pick up on this. And this is, oh, this is great. You know, it doesn't matter. We can do that. And we ended up picking up a lot of work from be, being slightly different. And if you could change anything from the past, what would it be? I think if I could change anything from the past, I know this is a bit of a cliche, but I probably wouldn't change anything because our mistakes have made us stronger and we've learned from them. But I do think one of the one of the biggest mistakes we made in the very, very early days was not truly understanding our costs. So it's very, very easy to look at while well, we move A to B. It's that price because the man costs us this, the fuel costs us this, the truck costs us this. 
it's very easy to forget about, well, hang on a minute, I haven't quite calculated the office overhead, the phone system overhead. Back then, the telex machine cost, not purely understanding a cost. I think if I could rewind and go back, I would have a better understanding of our costs and we would have maybe achieved things a little bit quicker than what we did. Oh, definitely. And things like, you know, a sack truck, it costs you, it's an overhead at the end of the day. It costs you money. So I always say to my clients, charge for the sack truck. You know, don't charge 35 quid, but maybe if you've got a sack truck and it costs you 100 quid or whatever, you know, you're going to have it for several years. Just charge a pound for every time it's used. At least you're getting something back. And but packing materials is another one. The amount of companies that are just not selling their packing materials or not necessarily selling them but costing them out i mean we always used to have a in the company i was involved with we always used to say if you bought a pack two and you got four lives out of it every job we put it on it was 25 pence if we got three lives out of it great we got 75 pence but if we got five lives out of it great we got one pound 25 if we used it on a long distance job we would charge them a pound because we would know we would never get it back yeah yeah i think i I think one of the big things that i think and i see with smaller companies now uh, and not just in this industry, in a lot of industries, is they don't have a true understanding of their administration costs. Yeah, it costs. It costs to, to put through the system a purchase invoice. It costs to raise a sales invoice. And if you are using a bank's overdraft, how much does that overdraft cost you over a twelve-month period? You know, yep. all these little elements have a bearing on your costs. And and look at your numbers regularly. Look at them daily. You know, I'm 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 old school here. Every day I do a bank break. Every day I look at our numbers because they tell you so much. And if you think you've done something, and it, you know, I can go back to the early days. And think, oh, that's good. We made 150 pounds on that. And then when we looked at the numbers, actually we only made 80 pounds. And why? Something must be wrong. Well, if something's wrong, it's because you're not costing your overheads correctly. Yeah, absolutely. And things like your warehouse have a pretty much a standard overhead. It's your rental of the warehouse if you're renting it. But yep. your actual removals, you know, the guys might be on £10 an hour today. They could be on £11 an hour tomorrow. Your pack two might be £2 today. It could be £2.50 tomorrow. Your price of diesel could have gone up. Everything changes. It fluctuates. So you really should review your costs on a regular basis. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, I, and, I, and I'm insistent here. We do it daily here. It, it's absolutely rigid. And you know, I'm fortunate now. I, I, you know, I have quite a large staff. But when when it was 100% just down to me and my business, my then business partner back then, it, it, I wish I paid a little bit more attention to it. And then maybe we wouldn't have felt some of the pain we did at times. <laughs> <laughs> I must admit, selling software at the moment. Years ago, people used to buy our software purely because of the storage invoicing run. You, know, you press a button and it printed legal money, as we used to call it in those days. <laughs> the invoices would just come flying out. But we had a costing element and still do in the software. People never bought it then for the costing side. But now people want to know their costs, which is great going forward. But it's yeah. taken a long time to get here. Yeah, a very long time. We have a we we run a a, a two tier system here. We, we still I I'm a great believer in, in in keeping up with everything and using these tools which will advantage you. You can look at software and say, well, hang on, the license fee of that is this much a year, and I can do without it. But actually, it makes your job so much more easier. So so we run that, but we still also run files where staff have to put the profit on front of the files. So they can see what we're doing, not only from the software, but also from their 
file they're handling, they're manually handling. Yeah. So what is your high point of being in the industry? Or you could have several. I, I do. Uh, there's an awful lot. We move awful lot of stars through our contacts, um, and they're always a high point and exciting for staff to see who we're moving. We're, we're just moving Cat Dealey back, uh, premises back from the USA um, to the UK. That's exciting to see the staff all get excited when we're when we're moving a, a, a name, you know, uh, that they recognise. My real high points of the industry are, are to, I have two major ones. One of them was being chosen to the management company for the probably one of the largest contracts in this country, if not the largest one. Um, that was I was chosen to be the joint supplier for the drawdown out of Germany for the Ministry of Defence. Back in 2015, when we did the first phase, we moved 2,500 families over a 12-week period back to the UK. That was mass organisation. and I was extremely proud that we got chosen to do that and more even proud that we managed to put forward an operational programme that moved those families within that time frame and everybody was delivered on time when we said. So I was immensely proud of that. And my real high point and recognition, I think, was being asked to be bar president. Which I have a question on that. So we'll come back to the, your, your bar presidency in a moment or two. I see that you are a member of the Movers Trading Club. Yes. Could you tell our listeners a, a little about such a club? I can. I'm aware of it, but I don't really know what <laughs> it does. Is it a secret handshaking club? or? <laughs> no. I happen to be chairman of the MTC. I'm coming to my second year, end of my second year term in May. The Moving Trading Club is an attachment of the overseas group of BAR. And it, it's a club that, that you have to be a member of the overseas group to belong to it. And it's, it negotiates the ocean freights with the carriers. And we run our own program, so no moving company has to pick up the phone and get a rate from a steamship line. We've already negotiated the rates, and we have our own software program that everybody has on their system, and they can immediately look up the current rate for the ocean freight that we've negotiated, and they have all their costings laid out there in front of them. So the only thing they have to do is pick up the phone and actually book the container with the line. So how do you become a member of the Movers Trading Club? You become a member of the overseas group. So everybody that's in the overseas group is a member of the MTC? Yeah, and then you can apply to become an MTC member. And all, well, I think we're probably 99% of the overseas group members are members of the MTC club. The MTC club also monitors all the rules and regulations to ship to and from the USA. You must hold an FMC license, which is a Federal Maritime Commission license. Right. And the MTC holds that license. So the moment you become an MTC member, if you sign up for the USA lane, you become part of that license. And I take it there is a cost to join this group? There is. Okay. And the cost, it's varied on, on the number of containers or TEUs you ship. Right. So, so we take a look at the numbers and you fall into a band for that membership fee. Excellent. You are the immediate past president of the BAR, as right. you said. 
Did you enjoy your time in your presidential role? I absolutely loved it. I I enjoyed every single aspect of it. It was hard at times, it was challenging at times, but it was so enjoyable. What was so hard about it, Tony? I think hard in it is trying to, and this is my personal view, it is trying to give a little bit to everything. Because as a president, you are involved in literally every aspect of the BAR, whether that be the commercial moving group, the national moving group, the overseas, you know, the APG, you're automatically, you know, president of the benevolent fund. So, So you're involved in everything the bar's involved with staffing the lot so and and was to be able to give a bit to everything and 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 some areas because of my knowledge i'm 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 not been ever been into you know office moving was more challenging than others and i didn't quite give as much but you know one thing i i was very pleased about was i thought it was my duty and my job to attend every council meeting to, to get a good feel of what was going on as many area meetings as possible. And obviously every board meeting and, uh, and all the meetings that go along with, with running a large successful association. So it took up a quite considerable amount of your time. Ian Studd, I think he's a magnificent director general. He really is because it, uh, not just the fact that he's an industry man himself, but he, he's also, and, and people forget, he's also a past president in his own right. Yes. And he gave me some absolute sound advice. And he said, this role, we're here to help you. The, the bar secretariat, the, the, the staff are there to help you in your role. Use us where you feel you need. And this job, you can give as much or as little as you want. When I got, I got asked twice, I turned it down the first time. And a few months later, I got asked again. And I just couldn't believe I'd been asked, to be honest with you. And, and I used to think, God, is, can't they really find anybody else? <laughs> you know, is this a stitch up? <laughs> <laughs> and I followed Gary Whedon. He also gave me some great job. But he also put his hand on my shoulder and said, Tony, you will enjoy it. You really will enjoy it. And, and it it's i it gave me an insight into so many other people's companies and how they run i got to know people so much better within our industry instead of just the odd little chat you know i actually got to know them better and, and it was just fascinating absolutely fascinating the one thing i did think i was always good at is i i have my company hat on but i can i can also wear an industry hat and yeah. that's what you've got to do in those worlds whether you're a counselor or area secretary area chairman or or on the board is you got to take off your company hat and you got to put on an industry hat and yeah. and I went into it through any roles that I've done within the bar I've been overseas chairman I've sat on councils is if it's good for the industry it will automatically benefit my company in the long run definitely is that decision why you've joined so many boards in the past? This industry has been good to me. You know, we've we've had our really, really, we have had some, you know, terrible years and some bad years. But on the whole, 
this industry has been very, very good to me. It's a fascinating industry. When I oh, worked totally. many years ago back in Michelin, it was all about, while it was interesting, no one was ever bigger than the product. No one was ever bigger than the name. This industry is very much opposite. And it's all about relationships. It's all about people you know. It's all about associations that you belong to. And, and the more you give, it is a, it, I know it's a cliche, but the more you give to this industry, it seems to be the more you get back. Yeah, and, and again, it's one big happy family again. I keep mentioning it on the podcast. The removal industry is a family at the end of the day. You know, I listen with great interest when you did the podcast with Ian Palmer. You know, and Ian Palmer said something on there, uh, which is some of his greatest friends are his competitors. Yeah. 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 And it's absolutely true. You could be a competitor, but you, you at the same time are very much friends and you use each other to your benefits, you yeah. know. So the, the bar to me really helped our company once we became member. It gave us structure. It gave us the things that, many things that I thought I knew, I actually didn't know. It gave us structure. It laid out a code for us. It laid out practices for us. So it really helped our company. And one of my main decisions to serve on these boards is, one, it helps me stay ahead of the curve in the industry. Yep. Yep. So if I'm on the overseas council or if I attend an area meeting, I learn something. Well, learning is being ahead of the curve. and I really, really, I feel like as this industry was so good to me, it is, it's really gratifying to give something back. And if something I've done or something I've said, or if I've been involved in a group of people that have made a decision for this industry that helps this industry, it's got to be worthwhile. Totally. What one thing would you change within the moving industry? Um, regulation. Oh, good old regulation comes up yet again. Yeah, now, <laughs> I, I, trust me, I can go back to some of my earlier days and think, oh my God, another standard, another this, another that. But regulation at a governmental level. Oh, that's better. In the fact that we're looked at, this industry is very much looked at by some people as being a very bottom-end industry. It's not. We're in people's lives. We're in people's homes. We're dealing with very sensitive stuff that people have acquired. We're dealing with families. We're dealing with, with, with the parents and the children. You know, At a very involved. stressful time as well. Exactly. And we're involved in all that. And I, I feel like, you know, we have a policy here and we have to have it for a number of our corporate accounts as well. And for rightly so, you know, all our staff, our background checks are done. You know, we're in people's homes. I think there should be a tighter regulation with companies that operate in this sector. I'm not knocking, you know, we hear it too many times, Dan's in their vans. I was a Dan in their van when I started. <laughs> And there's nothing wrong with that. There is an awful lot of very good Dan in their vans out there. But when we get into the heavy trucks and things like this, I think some of our regulations are a bit 
week, you know, like the financial standings that you have to have for running this type of equipment. I think they can be tightened up a little bit. So what advice would you give to a young Tony just starting out in the industry? Oh, (laughs) yeah, Yeah, don't do it. (laughs) No, that's totally the opposite. Um, You know, I, I, I think young vice, I think in the initial days, don't be frightened if you, if you, if you see an opportunity to run your own business for one. I've never looked back on that. But I do think one of my biggest errors, as I said, and we, we alluded to this earlier, is know your costings. Don't be a busy fool. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we were busy fools at times. Where do you see yourself in the industry in the next five years? Is there anyone ready to step into your business shoes and take over the reins? I'm probably a little bit guilty here. My, my son, Calvin, I, I know he's young movers. You had him on your podcast. I, I'm probably a bit guilty of holding him back a little bit. I've got him and my daughter. Calvin's 28. My daughter's 25. My daughter works here as well. And I'm probably harder on them than any other member of staff. I have a couple of staff here, aside from my kids, that have been with me almost from day one. So I I, I hold a very strong loyalty to those as well, as well as a lot of the staff here. But I I need to release the reins a little bit and put a little bit more, hand a little bit, not trust, because I trust my kids uh, implicitly. But I think I need to release some of the more day-to-day running of the operation to them a little bit. So I'm not ready to retire. I'm 57 and I can't see myself sitting at home and finding other hobbies. So I would like, but I would like more time. I can't remember. It must be 15, maybe even longer years since I've had more than one week holiday a year. Wow. Yeah. So I do take the um, long weekends, but um, to actually, to be, to be actually, it's time to say, actually, I'm going to have a two week vacation or a three week vacation and know that the company is still sitting here. I know it would be anyway. You know, the staff are very, very good. Um, they know everything. It's my trust issues, I think. But if you went on a two stroke, three week holiday, would you be contactable on your mobile phone or would you literally say, I'm going away for two straight three weeks. I'll see you when I get back. And I go on a week's holiday and say, I'm still contactable. <laughs> I do exactly the and same. And then I get, I get, I do get, particularly from one of my members of staff, a lady here called Rachel who's been with me since day one. Will you get off your phone? I've already done it. <laughs> But but I, but I am. Um, I, I've also got a young. I've still got a. a my, my youngest son is only twelve. So um, yeah, it would be nice to um, perhaps give him a little bit more time away with us. He's used to me working around. He comes in the office here. He's our filer in the summer. <laughs> oh, he's he's now doing the job Calvin said he was doing when he first joined. I listened to Calvin and said, <laughs> and I heard him say how much he told you how much he hated. 
the file. And, uh, <laughs> well, I've got the same with Ollie. He, he, he Oliver, my, my youngest, he said, I, I'm not just coming in to do filing. <laughs> <laughs> so where do you see the industry in five years? Do you see it changing at all? We don't do the the, the, the private domestic moving, so, so, but I, I also see it changing up. But on the overseas moving, I, I think we're in the biggest transition we've ever been in our lives. You know, shipments are getting smaller. Gone are the days when the telly was two foot wide. It's, it's now slimmer than an A4 notepad. Yeah. Gone are the days when we used to have half a dozen boxes of photograph albums and CD boxes, you know, everything. All of that is held on your mobile phone. Yeah, which, again, people don't realise. No. I just literally, as you mentioned it, I'm thinking, oh, my word, he's dead right. I mean, yep. can't remember the last time I actually took an actual photograph with a, with a camera or listened to an actual CD. No, so if, you, if I went back to some of our very old records, we do keep a few, you know, and I look at the average move might have been, you know, somewhere around about six to 700 cubic feet. That's now down to sort of 250 because so much is kept on the phone or the iPad or the laptop. So shipments are getting smaller and we live in a more disposable world. Slowly and surely, everything is disposed of now. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, surely it'd be a case of you know, TVs, washing machines, those yep. sort of things are so much cheaper now that if you're moving from one country to exactly. another, it's pretty much better to say, let's sell it before we move. And then we don't have to take it. We'll buy a new one once we arrive back. Exactly. Uh, and the other whammy on that is that industries are changing around the world. You know, if you go back 30 years ago, you wouldn't think there were these app companies or just web design companies. Yeah. These are prevalent now. And the type of employees that they tend to have are young, single, mobile graduates plus. Yeah. So they're, they're more... Well, I just got a bag of stuff. (laughs) (laughs) You know, they're not moving a home or the wife and three kids. (laughs) So that has shrunk the overseas market more. So I think there's a whole realignment. And I think we've all seen it this year. You know, none of us could have predicted this pandemic. But what the pandemic has done is shown people that you can work remotely just as successfully with Zooms, with all the meetings, you can have staff working from home. They don't have to be based in these large offices. I don't think that will ever go completely, but I think it will be reduced. So this is going to be, in my view, a shrinking market. So we have to adapt to that, but at the same time, look at the new developing markets, the big IT houses and that lot, which will move more people, but with smaller shipments. Gotcha. So what do you do outside of the industry to switch off, which I'm guessing you don't do? (laughs) (laughs) I think as a business owner, you never truly switch off. But I am a car fanatic. I've always been a car fanatic. My family have been in the garage business, so I was brought up in and around garages. So I'm a a car fanatic. Um, I'm currently rebuilding a 40-year-old Jeep, a Suzuki Jeep, which was originally designed for the Australian Army and ended up on the islands of Ibiza, if everybody can remember when we used to go to Ibiza in our teens. You'd hire a Jeep. And funny enough, I managed to track down one which was 40 years old and was sold by my father's garage. 
Really? And he was one of the first Suzuki dealerships in the country. So um, I'm doing a nutter bolt restoration on that at the moment. Oh, wow. I also, I just love my cars. I And, you know, I have a couple of other cars that I enjoy using. And I enjoy my motor racing. So I, I'm, I'm an avid fan of F1. Yay. And I used to most... <laughs> Before the companies came all-consuming, I used to off-road race. All right. So um, that may be something that I might look to get back into. If I can, why not? If I can why get not? out a, a little bit more. Take time off, Tony. You've built up the company. It's a success. Yeah. Let other people take over and just sit back, watch it from a distance and have fun. And finally... I like to end my podcast with a funny moving story. Do you have one or more to tell? Oh, wow. Oh, there's been a number. <laughs> <laughs> I talked about earlier about breaking into major accounts and how long it takes to do it. We, we succeeded. We had two or three corporate accounts that had asked us to open a, a small operation in Paris, which we did really purely for these three or four accounts. One of those accounts was really VIP and, and a major booker with us. And they dealt with some of the biggest blue chip companies you could think of. They booked a move with us to move a president of a really big blue chip company back from Paris to America. And and we did the normal thing. We went and surveyed the job and all the booking was done. And everything and it was this massive Parisian house it was gorgeous and the packers were there they were packing over four days and we did this move we thought absolutely successfully and I think it was three or four weeks later when the goods arrived in America we got a call from the account saying that there was a major problem and the president of this blue chip company called them making a huge complaint about what had happened and that we put his wife in a very difficult position. We were due to fly out to a conference in Florida literally the following week. So this account said, we want a face-to-face -face meeting at this conference. They were going to be there. And by the way, you're suspended until after this meeting. Oh, wow. So we were suspended off the work. Luckily, it was only a week. Well, we got to the conference and... and been there a couple of days and it came the time that we'd set for this appointment luckily we had booked a suite so we held the meeting in our suite so it wasn't in public and in from this client came came the president of our our client the president the vice president and their particular office manager and one other employee and they sat there and they said right where do we start and we said, well, you could start by telling us what the problem was. <laughs> wow, they hadn't even told you that. No, no, no. Well, they knew because we were only a week out from what, when this problem happened. And they sat there and they said, well, when the delivery crew was unpacking the boxes, the wife was grabbing a few boxes and unpacking them herself. And she pulled out of one of the boxes, which didn't have anything else in apart from a little bit of rubbish some photographs of your packing crew well back in the home in paris they had a it was such a large house they had a, a a small statue around this mini fountain of eros 
in the main hallway reception. <laughs> and the packing crew had found an old... You remember those Polaroid cameras which automatically um, print the picture off yeah. and you wait a couple of minutes for them to develop? <laughs> well, they decided to take a few funny pictures and one of those they decided to show their derrieres. <laughs> um, <laughs> put it in the French term. And... Of course, what they thought, they'd chuck the photographs in an old rubbish box to go on their van. <laughs> they'd actually packed it in the container. And, of course, when they told us about these photographs, the room went silent because <laughs> they, they finished by saying, and, and because they'd brought the photographs, the president of this blue chip company had given it to them. And they said, what have you got to say about them? And the, the gentleman who was running my Paris office at the time, it was dead quiet. He just looked at the photographs, he looked at them, and he said, I don't see what the problem is. They're not out of focus. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you can imagine, I'm sitting there biting my lip and thinking, this is our major account, and there's dead silent, and then suddenly the president of our client burst into laughter. (laughs) And that just broke the ice. And they decided oh, from dear. there it was just one of those things, and they, it was just hilarious how it <laughs> came out. But yeah, but, yeah oh, talk about wanting the ground to open up and swallow you. Absolutely brilliant. This industry is full of funny stories. Really yeah, is. yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah, I mean, I, I have to be, I have to say, Obviously, we mentioned it to the crew, but even we couldn't hold a straight face doing that to them either. (laughs) Ah, very, very good. Tony, thank you very much for giving up some time this morning to record this podcast episode with me. I truly appreciate it. Oh, you're more than welcome. And I have to say, Colin, I think what you're doing, opening up that people can listen to people's story is fascinating. It's a real insight to the industry. Thank you very much. It's something I've been meaning to do for a long, long time. But you're doing a good job. COVID decided that yeah, now's the time to do it. Let's let's fight because this industry is massive family with lots of stories, and everybody's got history. Everybody's got history. Absolutely. But thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you, Colin. Thank you, Tony. I sincerely hope you enjoyed episode 13 of Moving Matters. Please rate, review and subscribe in your favourite podcast player of choice and please tell your industry colleagues about Moving Matters. My thanks and appreciation go to Tony Tickner of the Eurogroup for giving up his time to record this episode. Thank you again, Tony. If you would like to know more about the Eurogroup and the services they offer, then you will find links within the show notes for this episode and on our webpage, movingmatterspodcast.co.uk. And please, if you have a funny moving story that can be relayed to our listeners, or you would like to be a guest on the podcast, then do reach out to me by either completing the contact form on our webpage, movingmatterspodcast.co.uk, emailing me, host at movingmatterspodcast.co.uk, or tweet me at movingmatterspc. Well, that is all from me. So until next time, keep moving.